<laughs> we see Jesus, increment 79, and this is we see Jesus, Hebrews 2020. Now, we're almost into 2021, but if we continue the series, as I hope we will, it'll still be Hebrews 2020, because no matter what it is, what year it is, it's always good to have 2020 vision. So let's take a moment of silent prayer today. I'm going to, though I'm titling this message from a phrase in Hebrews chapter 3, Te Genea Taute, which means this generation. This message is going to be a special message into our time, into our present current time, as many of the other messages have at least had parts of the message doing that. But today I'm going to call this an eschatological editorial. It's an editorial piece, and an editorial usually expresses some perspective. And so I want to present a perspective that I think is absolutely necessary and urgent for our times because many are being deceived by false doctrines and a false eschatology that not only tends to revise eschatology, which is future prophecy, but also, in doing so, revises history. And so we want to take a moment for that, or take a special message, and this may be briefer than usual, but we're going to take a special message today and call it an eschatological editorial. And so, Father, we pray that you'll prepare our hearts to receive the good seed of the word, prepare our hearts so that our hearts may be good soil to receive that seed so that it may grow up and produce fruit, some 30, some 60, some 100-fold. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The knowledge of history without ideological or political revision is a real asset at all times, but it is especially critical today. So I'll be speaking today not about American history, which is certainly a narrative that's under serious attack today by political radicals who desire to shape America for their own deluded ends. But today I'll be speaking of Israel's history, which has for some time been enduring an attempted revision by people who are deluded by a false eschatology. Now, eschatology, generally speaking, is the study of the end things, the final things, the last things. And there's a lot of kooky eschatologies out there today. And they seem to circulate during times of national crisis, during times like we have now of a pandemic, and during times of economic downturns, or political rivalries, and people, well, I like to say they come out of the cracks with their strange doctrines, usually try to identify some current figure as an antichrist and accuse people of that. They've been doing that since I was a baby Christian, and ever since people with a straight face and out loud said Jesus was coming in 1981 then 84, then 89, 
then of course 2000, then 2012. Well, they're all over the place today. So eschatology, the study of the final things, can be studied with great clarity through the lenses of the scriptures and through the lens of a theological functional specialty called history. History, much to our great fortune, happens to be one of Bernard Lonergan's eight theological functional specialties. R.M. Duran, one of his students, added a ninth, which he called Horizons. And the reason I say it's to our great fortune that these theological functional specialties were discovered and elucidated by Lonergan, I think initially in 65, he published the book Method and Theology in 1971, and these are eight theological functional specialties that I have kept me in bounds for the past several years in studying the scriptures. They're kind of like boundaries, and they're also guides in the study of the scripture. And so Duran added horizons, which we began to use in our Romans study. I used all eight theological functional specialties for our study of Revelation. Again, it keeps you in bounds, it keeps you accurate, it keeps you precise. And when Lonergan wrote this, it was about the time when the Beatles came out with the Beatles 65. It was 1965 and then eventually published in 71. But it was in another era when radicals were taking active measures attempting to discredit true history. And we've seen the same thing of late, only with greater intensity. It's the same as before, but with greater intensity. The whole Marxist agenda is to proceed with patient gradualism and then at certain opportune times in history to proceed with active measures. And that's a time in which we're living now. Active measures that border on or sometimes utilize violence. So this book came out during another era when radicals were taking active measures attempting to bring about an impossible utopia. The utopia that they desire is an impossible one, which if actually imposed upon a population, as we've seen of late even, we've seen hints of it, would actually be a nightmarish dystopia of mob rule at first, hypocritical tyrants, state agents as newscasters, useful idiots in sports and entertainment, and bobble-headed followers content to be ignorant of history and dissociated from reality. Now remember, this is an editorial, so I may be using some scathing language, but it's time for that right now. Now, theology is concerned with God's disposing of events, God's directing or orchestrating of events, while history is largely concerned with the human agents through whom those events are disposed or orchestrated by God.
Sometimes people are aware of this after the fact. Sometimes people are aware of it during the fact. Sometimes kings like Cyrus, whom God said, I held your hand and anointed you, aren't even believers, at least at first. The historian has an advantage that even the prophets of old did not have. The prophets of old sometimes saw the future through poetic lenses. That didn't mean they saw the future any less accurately. In fact, sometimes a symbolic, metaphorical view of the future is a far greater commentary on it than reporting precise facts in advance. The prophets of old sometimes saw the future through poetic lenses and with the eyes of metaphor and vision or of an artistic consciousness. The prophets were sometimes almost always rejected because of their message, but sometimes also because of their methods and because they were the kind of artists that we would call them today that are not understood They're the first kind of people that the Marxists put out and put down when they take over a country. Sometimes, however, the the prophets spoke with a pictorial precognition that was like history being written in advance. Other times they spoke and wrote of the sun turning to the color of sackcloth the moon becoming red like blood, the stars falling from heaven like figs from a tree. Sometimes they spoke in phenomenal detail of their God pierced in his hands and his feet, as in Zechariah. Or of 30 pieces of silver in the same book being the precise price of his betrayal. What under divine influence the prophet saw and uttered so often with symbols, the historian reports, hopefully with authentic subjectivity. That's the closest we can get to objectivity. Nobody in the human race, with the exception of Jesus Christ, has pure objectivity. We all have some form of bias. The best we can do is authentic subjectivity. So the historian, the closer he gets or she gets to an authentic subjectivity, the more accurate their record will be, the more accurate and precise will be their reconstruction of past events in a thing called history, and sometimes even their interpretation of those events. So the closest a man or woman, including a historian and a scientist or a theologian, can get to unbiased objectivity is authentic subjectivity. That's a subject we should bring up again soon because it's of great importance in our time and to everyone's personal development as well as spiritual development. After the fulfillment of the words of the prophets, the historian speaks or writes with facts and reportage of the events presaged by men who were moved by the Holy Spirit in epochs past, moved by the Holy Spirit to speak of events, by far the most significant being those events 
which occurred in, around, and by the man Christ Jesus. One example of the partnership of the prophet and the historian that we have available to us is that of Jesus the prophet, who spoke often of the impending destruction of Jerusalem. It was prophecy that we already have in a history book reported by Titus Flavius Josephus, a man who was born in Jerusalem in 37 AD, the very city that was destined for destruction, and who died in Rome, the city of Jerusalem's destroyer, in 100 AD. Josephus, whose writings include an account which he entitled The Jewish Wars, are in, in existence today and can be perused by 20th, 21st century readers even in excellent English translations. Josephus, though not always perfectly objective in who is, nevertheless gives a detailed account of the destruction of Jerusalem from hindsight and with a poignancy that could only be felt by one whose birth and heritage were located in that city. He reported events that were prophesied by Jesus, and he was not sympathetic to Jesus, so he's more of an objective observer of the things Jesus prophesied. He reported events that were prophesied by Jesus, who, like the prophets before him, spoke with metaphorical artistry that often employed the apocalyptic language of cosmic catastrophe. But this is not straight hyperbole or poetic exaggeration. It's Jesus himself who reiterated the words of Joel about the sun turning black like sackcloth, the moon turning to red like blood, the stars falling from the sky. And he did not do this as a hyperbole or a poetic exaggeration. But rather, he was using theology, he was using a specific theological terminology of cosmic catastrophe to express what was about to occur in Jerusalem 40 years after his words were spoken. So this is not hyperbole or poetic exaggeration. If indeed we see, as we should, history as a specialty of theology. Because theologically speaking, the events that Jesus was foretelling did have a cosmic theological significance that often escapes both the modern historian and the modern theologian. History has already reported, and historians are still researching and reporting the events of the years 66 to 73 A.D., a seven-year period at the heart of which is the fall of Jerusalem and the devastation of its temple, and listen carefully, a temple that to devout Jews may as well have been the universe itself. 
I was recently pleased, my Sirius went off, so I couldn't listen to Bluesville or the Beatles station when I was driving, and I was forced to listen to AM radio. But I was pleased to hear a popular radio preacher recently speak of the theological significance of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem while he was teaching from Mark 13. Almost everybody lately seems to be pointing to a future fulfillment of Mark 13. Of course, Mark 13 finds a parallel in the far more famous Matthew 24, even the subject of a Johnny Cash song, Matthew 24. And so while teaching from Mark 13, especially, now I was especially impressed that he referred to this as the destruction of the temple, especially in a time like ours when it's to the advantage of spiritual hucksters to peddle the snake oil of an imminent fulfillment of Jesus' prophetic words in that chapter in our future so that they can take to themselves the glory of the prophets of old. And it's a vainglorious attempt indeed. And there are many of these. I've seen enough and I don't want to see any more of their gibberish. And for, unfortunately, there are many bobble-headed believers readily ready to shake their heads in agreement who follow their distortions of prophecy, which are also revisions of history. You can't distort prophecy without revising history. To attack eschatology is also to attempt to revise history to your own detriment, to the detriment of others. In every crisis, these carpenter ants and would-bees, how do you like that? That's a pretty good joke. Get would-bees, W-O-O-D-B-E-E-S, and W-O-U-L-D, B-E. Wood-bees and wood-bees. Wood-bees bore into wood, destroy homes. Wood-bees are people who would be prophets but are not. In one or two cases, they're witches. But there are many bobble-headed believers. They do this with their heads. Yes, yes, yes. Just like people who watch news broadcasts from state newscasters and propagandists and bow their heads just like this bobbleheads a time of great gullibility we're in right now in every crisis these what i call them carpenter ants because they destroy wood and wood bees they seem to rise up and come out of the cracks in the wood and claim that antichrist has arisen and he is some contemporary figure or other And then they claim things like barcodes on grocery products are the mark of the beast. I've been around long enough to hear Henry Kissinger being touted as the Antichrist. I've been along, I've heard Ronald Reagan was, it depends, see if you're a Democrat, I guess Ronald Reagan would be a good Antichrist. And it hasn't, I heard that Obama was the Antichrist by some right-wingers. That, see, that, it happens. These people are so flimsy-minded 
that they have no idea of the history of Israel, the prophecy of Matthew 24, Mark 13, as having application and fulfillment in the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. If you miss the A.D. 70 trajectory of eschatology, you can't help but distort history. Now, most recently, the COVID vaccine now, according to some, is supposed to be the means of putting the mark of the beast in people. This is utter nonsense and toxic garbage, and it's unfortunately eaten up by professing Christians who have no home in the truth and no anchorage in the hope that's embodied in Jesus who already inhabits for us future world. We needn't entertain the maudlin and moronic pseudo-insights that have branded our current president as an agent of Zionism. That's another one. They've branded President Trump as an agent of Zionism. And they've spoken of some supposedly Jewish plan to execute Christians with guillotines. So all of these, well, this particular accusation amounts to a new anti-Jewish sentiment, which is not really new at all. It's alive and well in the poisoned well of literature like the Protocols of the Elders of Zion and other lizard-brained literature that is devoured to the delight of Nazis and fascists and of all stripes today, and they don't all happen to be white. These Nazis and fascists and anti-Semites, haters of Israel, haters of Israel's God. Now, I echo the words of the Apostle Paul who said of the menacing missionaries who would ruin the gospel of the grace of God and in ruining the gospel, the souls of their subscribers of to this gospel. Paul said, and I love this verse because I love the stand that Paul took 1,970 years ago for the gospel of grace because it's only because he took that stand in Antioch, even against Peter, that we have the gospel of the universally saving, unconditionally saving, uncontingent grace of God with us even still today. He said to these menacing, about these menacing missionaries who wanted to distort the grace of God. He said, to these people, we did not yield in submission even for a moment. Paul wouldn't have knelt at the national anthem, incidentally. To these people, we did not yield in submission even for a moment. So that, listen carefully, so that the truth of the gospel would be preserved for you. Galatians 2.5. Now, some would translate the word there used as not for a moment, as for an hour, because the word is ora, and literally it means hora, H-O-R-A. Literally, it means a 60-minute period. 
But that misses the point. The word hour, just like we say, I've reached my hour. This is my hour. Jesus said it all through John's gospel. My hour has not yet come. It wasn't a literal 60-minute period. It was a moment of extreme importance. And so Paul is actually, what he's saying here is he didn't yield to these characters even for a second. If someone would send him a video about someone today being the Antichrist, he wouldn't give it a second. So don't expect me to give it an hour of my day. I will not. So, I can tell you what that is, those videos are. We used to do something very strange in Vermont. We had a shotgun. We went into a field... Now, this sometimes became a very messy prospect. We would go into a field where cows had been feeding for a couple of days. And we would shoot at the cow pies that were made as a result of their excellent diet. Because there was some, only a Vermonter can understand the effect of a close-range shotgun blast into a pile of cow manure. Well, I'm doing it again. Those video presentations by people who are anti-Semites and call themselves Christian theologians are the cow pies. I'm shooting with a 12-gauge, double-barrel back then, shotgun into your cow pie. Now, I hope that's clear. Some of you don't like it and they think you think, well, he's a little intellectual in some of his presentations. Well, take that then. All right. So, Paul didn't choose to yield even for a moment, even for a twinkling of an eye. For that reason, the gospel of God's grace and universal mercy is still with us today, 1970 years later, if you consider that Galatians was written around 50 A.D. And that's why you're wasting your time when you send me hour-long videos that are distortions of history and more distortions of theology, which I view as a distortion of God's own word, which I happen to have devoted 40-plus years to studying and teaching. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not angry at you whoever you are, and this could apply to hundreds of people. I just don't want you to be ignorant of the true nature of the end times and just what we should be doing in light of the appending eucatastrophe. Please notice that word. E-U-C-A-T-A-S-T-R-O-P-H-E. Eucatastrophe. I couldn't find it in the dictionary, but it's a word that was coined by J.R.R. Tolkien, who was not only the author of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, but he was also a noted philologist or student of words. The word eucatastrophe was recently brought to my attention by Mrs. Jennifer Messick, Pastor Brian's 
Messick's wife. And I find it an auspicious term for the universal good catastrophe that is impending today, which is called by various names in the scriptures. One of those terms is the regeneration. The Greek word pollen genesia, a compound word, pollen genesia, literally means again genesis. It's a universal regeneration. Jesus used it in Matthew 19:28, telling the 12 apostles or disciples, telling the 12 that they would be sitting on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel, again in the regeneration. This doesn't mean an individual's regeneration. He's talking about the 12 apostles being a kind of seedbed for all of humanity in the new creation, the regeneration. Another word is that which the voice of God spoke in, of in all of the holy prophets. Holy prophets, not false prophets. Holy prophets, not phonies. God spoke, his voice spoke in all of the holy prophets from time immemorial about the universal restoration called apokatastasis. In the Greek, it's a little more extended of a phrase. Apokatastasios pantone. The restoration of all things over all time without exception. Acts 3.21. Same thing could be said of anakephaliosis in Ephesians 1.10, as we've seen before. Eucatastrophe. Now, get some of this vocabulary down. Is a splendid word and can summarize the many words that describe the prophetic climax of history and prophecy, including the last judgment, the time of the last judgment, which will be an Aufheben, in order to use a German word, and I'll explain it in a moment. The last judgment will be transformative of the false into the true and authentic. And it will be the rectification of all that's wrong through the final application of the just and mysterious law of the cross. Yes, this will be in print. Yes, you'll be able to read this. Eucatastrophe reminds me of the German word Aufheben, A-U-F-H-E-B-E-N. Generally speaking, and in modern parlance, Aufheben simply means to cancel. That should be a familiar term to you today in what has been probably overly called the cancel culture. But used in philosophy, where I found it to be fascinating, and even in theology now, it holds together all the usually contrasting meanings of abolish, preserve, and transcend. All those nuances of meaning in one word. Abolish and preserve. How do you abolish something and preserve? Well, you abolish my old false self, but preserve me in my true self by incorporating me in Jesus Christ. A third meaning in Alfhaben is transcend. You also, God also causes me to transcend myself in the destruction of my false self and the preservation of my true self in Christ Jesus. And so, Alfhaben, 
is a word that reminds me also of another term used in philosophy, sublation, and not only philosophy, but science, biology, botany. Sublation, which describes an action of incorporation into something or someone whereby the one who is incorporated is destroyed only in the sense that its former inferior identity is integrated into a higher unity and in the process the old is destroyed while the new and the true is preserved and transcends itself. Do you realize that's exactly what happens when you are incorporated in Christ Jesus? You are destroyed through co-crucifixion with him. You are incorporated in him through baptism by the Holy Spirit and not in water. And you, in that process, transcend the old, destroyed, false self, and your true self is preserved and transcends the old. That's what we call living in Christ. Extra nos, outside yourself, in Christo, in Christ. So talk about the Christian life all you want. If it isn't that way, it isn't the Christian life. You can't talk about the Christian life without the Aufheben of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and our incorporation into the man Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit. You can't talk about Christian living unless it's a higher integration of living in the true self in Christ Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. All right. I didn't plan to preach during this editorial, but... Such is life. I've just taken time to address a particular item of concern today. Originally, I was just going to make this a part of a message in Hebrews, but I think it has the importance of something that stands alone. Above all, it's born of a pastoral concern. Jesus, the good shepherd himself, the good pastor, warned his disciples from the Mount of Olives to see to it that no one deceives you. Matthew 24, 4 and 5. Mark 13, 5. Luke 21, 8. These are all parallel passages. And Paul, and in our next message we may also address more of this, and Paul, more than once, speaking pastorally, he wasn't just an apostle, he was definitely a pastor with a pastor's concerns. He says this, I don't want you to be ignorant or uninformed, he could say. He said this about his own, his own situation. He didn't want them to be ignorant about his own situation as a missionary. Romans 1.13 2 Corinthians 1.8, he tells them about a great death which he faced, a threat of death which he faced and which God delivered him from. 2 Corinthians 1.8-11. And he didn't want them to be ignorant and uninformed so that gossips would get the wrong idea about his situation. He said, I don't want you to be ignorant concerning our baptism into the death of Christ Jesus in Romans 6.3, which I just talked to you about. Concerning the law or Torah, the true purpose of Torah or the law, 
Romans 7.1. Concerning the mystery of Israel's total salvation in connection with the salvation of all the nations and God's intention to have mercy on all, he did not want them to be ignorant in Rome of that intention of God. Romans 11, 25 to 32. He did not, as we recently discovered, want his readers to be ignorant concerning the exodus or the desert generation, which we have more to talk about in our next increment, which I guess will be increment 80. He said, I don't want you to be ignorant. And 1 Corinthians 10, 1. And perhaps most of all, well, there's also, I don't want you to be ignorant concerning spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, 1. I don't want you to be ignorant concerning Satan's devices. And he says, we aren't ignorant of Satan's devices in 2 Corinthians 2, 11. But today, especially concerning eschatology, and specifically in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, I don't want you to be ignorant regarding the destiny of the living and the dead. So I'm going to close this eschatological editorial. And if you're listening to this while not driving or using machinery, you might want to turn to the passage I'm about ready to cite in Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 29. I'm going to close this editorial today. With Jeremiah 29, I'm going to be reading it straight from the Holman Christian Standard Bible, which is a pretty good translation on all counts and in almost every place. And so I'm going to close this eschatological editorial with the prophet Jeremiah's own prophetic pastoral take. Jeremiah was also a pastoral prophet. Almost all the, all the prophets had some form of pastoral inclination. His take on the catastrophe that has come to be impending to us. There is a catastrophe impending for you right now if you're listening. And so, in fact, Yahweh, the God of Israel, speaks these words through the prophet Jeremiah to us. It has come down to us. The God of Israel speaks these words through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 29, 8 through 14. He will speak these words again through my voice today. Though they are specifically spoken to Israel in exile in Babylon... They have a universal ring to them, especially since the eschatological fate of Israel is bound up with the final destiny of all the nations, of all humanity, and in fact, all creation. So here's my closing words today. For this is what the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel says, don't let your prophets who are among you and your diviners deceive you. And don't listen to the dreams you elicit from them. For they are prophesying falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them. This is the Lord's declaration. For this is what the Lord says. When 70 years for Babylon are complete, 
I will attend to you and will confirm my promise concerning you to restore you to this place. For I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration. Plans for your welfare, not for disaster. To give you a future and a hope. You will call to me and come pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, the Lord's declaration, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and places where I banished you. The Lord's declaration, I will restore you to the place I deported you from. Father, take these words and rivet them into the hearts and minds of all the listeners today, for we entrust our spirit to you. In Jesus' name, amen.